So friends, I, I wonder if you could imagine a world that if I said the word tweet, you only thought of a bird outside. Or maybe if I said the words 5G, you thought, oh, that's my spot at the parking lot at Six Flags, right? Or maybe you could imagine a world where if I said LinkedIn, that simply meant that you were in jail for a while. Or if, you, if I said the cloud, you thought, oh, that's just something that's up in the sky. Or perhaps if I used the word application, you would think, oh, that's what my college, you know, or my high school graduates getting ready to do to apply for college. But today we, we use those words and, and they mean something totally different than they did 25 years ago. And there's words that are changing our vocabulary every single year as it relates to social media. And today, as we continue our series on God and everyday life, today we're going to be talking about the subject of media, me, and my walk with Jesus. Media, me, and my walk with Jesus. Now, I get it. There's a handful of you in this room that you're like, I'm not on social media. I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Like, that's for the birds. I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't tweet. I don't, I don't do social media posts. I don't do any of those things. And I would just say, do you have a cell phone? Because if you have a cell phone, I would say that that's a form of media and entertainment that is probably used in other means or ways that also could affect or impact your walk with Jesus. For instance, I don't know about you, but on my phone, not only do I have Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and all these other things, but I have YouTube TV. And I have so many things at my fingertips. And depending on what you have on your phone, we could use that for potential good, and we could use it for potential evil. But today, I, I want to take you through a variety of passages in our Bible that help us to, to, to examine, in some ways, the motivation of humanity. And I want you to see it from the very beginning of our Bibles to the end of our Bibles. So if you have your Bible with you, what I'm going to encourage you to do is join me in a couple of different places. One would be Genesis chapter 11. Another area that you could join us is Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to mark both of those places, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 11. Now, if you were with us last weekend, I briefly mentioned this passage, uh, but today we're going to examine it just a little bit deeper, and then we're going to move on from there as it relates to God in our everyday lives. In Genesis chapter 11, you have a group of people who have gathered in this city, this place called Babel. Uh, we know that in Genesis chapter 10, the guy that founded this was a mighty hunter, a mighty hunter of the Lord. His name was Nimrod. Uh, and so Nimrod's going to gather a bunch of people uh, and around this city, and they're going to desire to make a, a spectacle of the city and even a desire to, to make a name for themselves. So let's read it. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, just so you understand, this is, uh, this is after a handful of events that have transpired. You have the creation of all that we see and know, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of man. That's when Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit that was told for them not to, to eat of, and they eat of it. Uh, sin enters the world, Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain who murders his 
his brother Abel. Uh, In Genesis chapter 6, you have the flood of the earth. After the flood of the earth, you get to Genesis chapter 10. You've got a guy like Nimrod who's wanting to make a name for himself. He's a mighty hunter and a prowler prowler for for himself. And, And then in Genesis chapter 11, you have them making a name for themselves here by basically building a city and they have the, the, the technology of that day, stone and bitumen, to make a name for themselves, but they don't just make a, a city or a wall. It says this in verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And then they said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. It goes on and says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In verse 5, it goes, down, it goes on and it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Okay, so just real quickly, let me catch you up on a couple of things. So you've had all these events that have transpired all the way up to this point. Then they, they say, hey, let us make a name for ourselves. They build a tower of the, he- the heavens. And God says, hey, listen, this is a dangerous thing because the pride of man is beginning to develop. And they're saying, come, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, at this point in time, there's a couple of things that are really interesting. Is, it says they are one people with one language. And you know that they've traveled east to the land of Shinar. And so this is people that were, that were living in the areas of Mesopotamia, and they are making a name for themselves. And their desire is to make known how great they are. Now, the reason that's important is because God sees their heart's motivation. And he says it's important that we disperse them. Because if, if this is what they'll do, and they've already done this to make a name for themselves. Hey, there's no telling what they're going to do next. And there's nothing that's going to stop them from continuing in their arrogance and in their pridefulness. And so God is going to disperse this group of people that was one people, one language into multiple people and languages. Look what happens next. Verse 7, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth and left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You ever heard the term, you babbling fool? That's where it came from, okay? Uh, There wasn't someone that came up with that expression. The Babylon fool was right there. And and the Babylon fool is just an idea of someone who is foolish and needed to be dispersed. And that's who this people were. Now, what's interesting is, is I believe that it's there in your Bible that you would see humanity take on different languages, colors. If you were to think, well, there's different ethnicities. Um, I happen to believe there's really just a, really a couple of ethnicities. There's Jews and Gentiles. But if you were to look and, and you were to see a sheet of paper um, that asked the question as you're filling out an application, not the app on your phone, but the application, and it asks you, are you Caucasian? Are you Indian? Are you African? And it has all these like 14 different things to select. Y'all know what I'm talking about? 
That's where that started, was in Genesis chapter 11. One people, one language dispersed throughout the earth because of their pridefulness. And you might wonder, well, okay, is that the most prideful that people could have gotten? And I would say, I think that's just the beginning of who we are as people. Matter of fact, when you are reading throughout your Bible, um, before we go to Matthew chapter 4, the apostle John actually said these words in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, this is what John says about loving the world. And he gives this warning. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. And then he goes on and he says this, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Y'all heard that before? Then he says, for all that is in the world, and then he names a few things. He says, there's the desires of the flesh. He says, there are the desires of the eyes. And he goes, and there's the pride of life. And then he says this, those things are not from the Father, but they're from the world. And then he continues and he says, and the world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of the, of the Lord or the will of God will abide forever. Now it's interesting that John says these words. He says, look, if you, if you wanna love the world, okay, this is what it looks like. But he goes, if you're gonna love, the, love God, then he goes, this is what it looks like. And he tells you the things that it looks like as, as it relates to loving the world. And he says, it's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, it's the pride of life. All three of which were actually in Genesis chapter three, when Satan, the accuser, goes to Adam and Eve and helps them believe a lie as to why they should eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were forbidden to eat. And so it was because of an appeal of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life that Eve took the apple or the fruit. I don't know why I said apple. We don't know it was an apple. Um, we know that they took the fruit and they ate of it, which was forbidden. And then she took and gave to her husband who likewise ate. What, what was that? It was those three things. It's interesting. It is also those things that lead to Genesis chapter 11, them making a name for themselves. It is also those three things that you see in Matthew chapter Four, that Satan, the accuser, goes to Jesus on and he's going to appeal to him while he is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 4. In verses 1 through 11, it says this in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40, uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I read that and I go, I bet he was. Like I can go 40 minutes and I'm like, hey, I gotta have some cashews or something. Give me something to eat. Snickers, give me something. I'm always feeling like I'm hungry, right? So here it is, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that time is when Satan, the accuser, shows up. And he shows up as Jesus is about to, to begin his earthly ministry and he wants to tempt him. He wants to allure him away from God's desires. Just as in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve were enticed and allured. Just as Genesis chapter 11, you have those that are gathering in the plain of Shinar at Babel were enticed and lured away. That's what... God, that's what we see in scripture that Satan wants to do with them. And here's the question. 
If Satan would do that with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, with Cain in Genesis chapter 4, with all of the descendants of the earth before the flood, if he'll do that with those in Babel in Genesis chapter 11, he'll do that with Jesus, the perfect Savior. My friends, do you think he would desire to do that to you? And the answer is absolutely. The enemy is real. He's crafty, he's cunning, he's deceitful. We know in John chapter 10 that he desires to, to steal, kill, and destroy. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that he roars around like a prowling lion. He's looking for someone to what? Devour, to destroy, to eat. He wants to, he wants to destroy you, and he wants to destroy us. And the question is, is, well, how will he do that? And I would say, I think he wants to appeal in a variety of ways that you see in Genesis 3, Genesis 11, and other places throughout our Bible. But you see here in, Genesis, or in Matthew chapter 4, matter of fact, you see that Satan goes to, to Jesus while he's in the wilderness. And it says, the tempter came to him and he said these words, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the question is, is what is it that he is tempting Jesus to do? Well, what he is tempting Jesus to do is to take stones and to make them bread. Now, you may struggle to, to put yourself into this passage, but I want to help you put yourself in this passage. When you think about Jesus, you think, oh, well, he was tempted to take stones and make them bread. And then he says, hey, it's written, man should not live on bread alone. And we go, we go, oh, wow, that's a fantastic response. And I've taught this text on a variety of different passages. And I think the way that we see the word of God and implant the word of God in our life is very helpful as to how we respond to the enemy. I think there's something to be said for that. But I also put myself in this text and I see the temptation that I might have if the enemy was talking to me. And the reason why is because he's appealing here to really the desires of the flesh. And I would just say, this is the warning for you and I as we approach our phones, media, me, and, and my walk with Jesus. And that would be simply this. Number one is to flee the desires of the flesh. Flee the desires of the flesh. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why? It's because it's the, it's the desires of the flesh that Satan is appealing to in Matthew chapter four. When, when he comes to him and he goes, hey, look, you're hungry, take these stones and make them bread. What he's appealing to there in his flesh is in some ways his power and his ability. For instance, when I think about this, I think about if a seventh grader comes to me on a Wednesday night, which they do quite frequently, and they say, hey, Brandon, I wanna play you in a game of basketball. I'm gonna, I'm gonna whoop you. And I'm like, come on, dude, I'm about to thump you off the court, like literally. And they're like, no, like seriously, man, you don't know who you're messing with, okay? I had, a, I had like a fourth grader come up to me last Sunday and tell me that he's gonna school me in basketball, okay? Literally, legit, it happened. And listen, let me tell you how I responded. I responded just like any other prideful pastor would respond. I'm like, come on, dude, I'm about to take you out to the court and I'm about to whip you. And every time he takes a shot, guess what I do? I take that ball and I throw it as far as I can. And then what do I do next? I kind of bow up over him like, come on, dude, you want some more? And you're like, Brandon, you're 42, man. You Surely you're over that. And I'm like, friends, I'm not over it. I'm not, I'm not. So I, I, I still struggle in this idea of the lust of the flesh. Now the lust of the flesh can appeal in a variety of ways. 
But the lust of the flesh, in some ways, begins with self-exaltation. But it, it doesn't just begin there, but it causes us, as we move into the flesh, it causes us to desire things that, in some ways, we see. So in Genesis chapter 3, the lust of the eyes was we see the desire for fruit. The lust of the flesh was it makes one wise. So the idea is, is that it's something that we would grab. It's something that we would get. And it begins with just the subtle temptation or this deceitfulness in our hearts that sometimes kind of begins to manifest itself. And what's interesting is, is when you think about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, in some ways they all kind of weave together. And in a lot of ways as you're studying, it's, it's very easy to get confused because you're like, aren't these separate things? And they, they are separate things, but it's interesting because they're, they're, they're interwoven. And what happens is it's an appeal to us in our flesh. It's like my 13-year-old who, as he gets taller and stronger, he wants to bow up more to me. Like his chest is out a little bit more, and he's like, come on, Dad, I'm getting close. I'm, I'm, I'm at the age where I can take you. And I'm like, no, son, you're not. I assure you, you're not there yet, right? And some of you dads can relate because you got teenage boys, and they're like, oh, yeah. And you see them growing up, and in one hand, you're like, man, I can see their development. In the other hand, it's like, hey, you got to be careful because I will put you in your place, right? Now, that is what the enemy is doing here. Hey, Jesus, if you if you who you say you are, if, if you're really God, take these stones and make them bread. For me, it had been really easy in my flesh to say, oh, that's not a problem. Not only can I make these stones bread, but let me show you what else I can do. That's what you have to resist. See, the resistance is, is saying, oh, let me show you who I am. And then as you open the door in your flesh, there's multiple things that come from that. As it relates to your phone, there's power, there's greed, there's desire, there's lust. All of those things really come out of the desire to say, let me make a name for myself. And I can tell you that as I approach this subject, it just, these things popped up for me simply because social media is not inherently bad. Now, there are some of you in this room like, oh, come on, pastor, it's this, that stuff's terrible. There ain't, not, you know, there ain't nothing good about all that. And I would just say, you have to be careful about that. Because just as those gathering on the plain of Shinar took brick and bitumen and put it together, there's nothing inherently evil about bricks or bitumen. Y'all understand that? There's nothing inherently evil about a golf club. There's nothing inherently evil about a phone. There's nothing inherently evil about social media itself. You can use all of those things for good. You could take a brick and make a home for it, or you could take a brick and put it through a window. You could take a golf club and you could play around a golf, or you could take that golf club and you could hit someone upside the head. What you do with those things is the challenge. And so as it relates to social media, we could easily say, well, that's a terrible thing. You should stay away from it. I think that's a bad approach. I think that's the same type of approach that if we take, teach our kids that, hey, these things are inherently evil and you should stay away from them. Are there things that are inherently evil you should stay away from? Yes, but there's a lot of good gifts that promote the gospel and media is one of those things. It has taken the gospel and it has spread it across the globe in ways it couldn't 30 years ago. 
It's amazing that, that I can see and meet with pastors all across the planet and we can talk about what God is doing in their day and we can talk in the middle of our work week for 45 minutes and we couldn't do that 30 years ago. But it's that same door that if we're not careful, then we'll allow the subtle ways the enemy will use to appeal to Satan in his, or, or Satan to appeal to Jesus in his flesh that Satan would desire to appeal in our flesh. And so let's just talk about a handful of subtle ways that the enemy would love to appeal to your flesh as it relates to your phone and media. And I would say one is just impurity. Like it is, it is the gateway to your eye. Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. He says if the eye is healthy, the whole body will be healthy. And, it, and that the reality is, is that our eyes are something we have to pay attention to. And as it relates to our phone or Facebook or Twitter or anything else, you have to be careful. Why? Because it's a gateway, if not careful, for the enemy to use against you. And it begins with, I think, subtle allurement. I, there are many people that seek out impurity and a means to do that is the phone. Used to be a magazine, it's changed. Magazines are obsolete, you got a phone. That's something you have to be careful about. But I would say there's a lot of us in here that maybe it's a subtle approach to that. Meaning you're on Facebook and you're watching these trivial videos. And I don't know about you, but that's where I get sucked in the most. Uh, there's these trivial videos, which means that like they're just these little short minute clips. And I'm like, I am, like, I'll just tell you, I'm a sucker for somebody catching an alligator in some weird river. And I'm like, dude, they just did that. And, and I sucked into it. And then I'll move from that to somebody's weed eating a lawn and they take it and it gives you this hour long, right? Summation of what they did, weed eating this lawn in the 45 second clip. And I'm like, oh yeah, I love that. Cause I love when I take a lawn and make it look like that too. And it's crazy because as you're doing these Random things, a guy wrestling an alligator, a lion catching a buffalo, somebody weed eating something, all of a sudden, another clip will pop up, right? And that's a woman in a swimsuit. And how quickly our eyes can shift in an area that we say, you know what, that's innocent to, to the desire to, to click. And it's clickbait, right? Now, the reason I share that with you as a real experience is because that's happening to our teenagers and to our adults. And I would say that there are a variety of people in this room that you're not experiencing that because you're like, I don't, I don't get on that, any of that. And I would just say, hey, look, you have to be careful because the enemy is crafty and he's cunning and he's deceitful. And media is a part of our lives in a variety of ways, whether it be TV, entertainment, Netflix, movie, whatever. And there are subtle ways that you and I can be drawn. And I would say, resist it. Resist it. Not only resist the allurement to be caught into those things, but also resist the desire to be caught in to conversations that promote coarse joking or unhealthy talk. That happens too. And so be careful about those things. Be careful that your use of time is not excessive in these areas because you may be completely healthy and whole as you scroll through Facebook looking for new recipes to cook this week in a crock pot. But the time that you spend on that is excessive and it's not useful and it's not God honoring. Look through all of those things. Kevin DeYoung 
makes this quote, and it's very long, it's lengthy, I'll give you warning of that, but it is so fantastic as it relates to how the enemy could appeal to us in innocence. And he's talking about practically in this area, our eyes, and how our eyes in some ways could, could be drawn into movies or entertainment. And I think if not careful, we can make the idea that movies, entertainment are inherently bad. And, he, and he's going to make very clear that that's a bad argument because you can't make that argument. But he's, he's going to go on to tell you how you and I as believers ought to think through things. So this is what he says. He says, it's one thing to describe evil or even depict it. He says, I'd never suggest that good writing or filmmaking must avoid the subject of sin. There are many thoughtful, tasteful movies, television shows, plays, musicals, and books out there. And he goes, and the good ones usually deal with sin. Sin by itself is not the problem. The Bible is full of rank immorality. It would be simplistic and morally untenable, even unbiblical, to suggest that you cannot watch sin or read about sin without sinning yourself. What he's saying is, he goes, for every good movie, there's a villain, and there's sin, or there's a problem. There's an antithesis uh, to, to the whole thing. And the thing is, he goes, you have to realize that. He goes, think about the Bible. He goes, you can't read it and not see the sinfulness of man, whether it be the murder of Cain and Abel in, in four, uh, Genesis chapter four, or if it be in the book of Judges, you see Samson and his allurement of a woman. You see that, but then he goes on, he says this. He says, but the Bible never titillates with the description of sin. It never paints vice with virtue's colors. It doesn't entertain with evil unless to mock it. The Bible does not dull the conscience by making sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And there are no pictures of plunging necklines. He says, if we're honest, we even seek exposure to sexual immorality and temptations to impurity and call it innocent relaxation. But he asked the question, how can we stare at sensuality, which aims to amuse and arouse and weaken our conscience and deaden our sense of spiritual things? We must consider the possibility that much of what church-going people do to unwind would not pass muster for the Apostle Paul, not to mention God. Brothers and sisters, we must be more vigilant with our kids, with our families, with our Facebook posts, with our text, with our tweets, with our own eyes and our hearts. And what is he saying? He's saying, listen, you and I have to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we have to be aware that there is an enemy who desires to steal, kill, and destroy not only your joy, but your name, your marriage, your family, and your children. So be vigilant, be on guard, don't be naive, and get in the game. And that's the key. Because friends, our children are being bombarded with not only the feeling and the need to be a part of these things, but also the temptation for them to drift them away slowly, if not careful. And so we have to be wise. But that's not where Satan stopped. He didn't just say, hey, turn these stones into bread. Satan continued on in verse five of Matthew four. He says, then the devil took him, meaning Jesus, to the holy city and he set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And then he said to him, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, what's interesting about this is that as Satan says these words, he actually quotes a passage from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, but he leaves out a convenient phrase. 
So he doesn't give the whole thing. He just gives an excerpt of that passage. And he goes, hey, Jesus, hey, if, if you're really who you say you are, not only could you take stones and make them into bread, but he goes, hey, throw yourself down. And if you're the son of God, surely these angels will come around concerning you. But, but he left out conveniently the phrase to guard you in all of your ways. The emphasis on that passage wasn't, hey, test God by throwing yourself down and his angels will show up. That's not what the, the context of that was. And so that's why Jesus replies, hey, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying, hey, look, hey, why don't you throw yourself down? And if you're God, then, then you snap your fingers and angels will be here. What I would say is this, what we are need to be warned of is, is self-exaltation. And so number one, we flee from this idea of impurity. Number two, we, we desire to flee from self-exaltation. And self-exaltation is something that is happening in our day and time. Matter of fact, Paul writes to Timothy and he says these words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses one through five, and it might sound familiar, but he says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He says, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I always let my kids read that one. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good. Does that sound familiar in our day? He says, they'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And it says, key, avoid what? Avoid such people. Now you might ask the question, what is Paul writing about? Well, he's writing to Timothy and he says, hey, listen, you need to know that there is impurity in your day. And you need to know that just as I warned you a chapter earlier to to fleece impurity and youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith and love along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He goes, just as I would call you to flee these things, he said, I want you to be on guard against these things. And what is he saying that you should be on guard against? The people who are lovers of themselves, self-exalters. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think Genesis chapter three occurred? Adam and Eve exalted themselves above God by eating forbidden fruit. Why do you think Cain killed his brother Abel? Pride and self-exaltation. Why do you think in Genesis chapter 11, they build a tower to the heavens at Babel? Self-exaltation. What is Satan alluring and enticing Jesus to? self-exaltation. Hey, if you're God, show them. And, and angels will come because you are snapping your fingers. So let me ask you a question, friends. What does media and entertainment oftentimes bring about in us? Self-exaltation. So not only does it allure in some ways and lead us away in the flesh, but if not careful, it'll also help us build up our pride. And the more that we are on Facebook or other social media accounts, the more tempted we are to allow pride to rule our hearts. And you see it in a variety of ways. It oftentimes means that we would build ourselves up. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think you ever see people on Facebook who would give you the best glimpses of their life? 
and protect you from the worst ones? That happen? So you see the family photos and you see the vacations, but you don't what? Oftentimes see the difficult conversations. You don't see the yelling and screaming, the belligerent talking behind closed doors. We don't get a glimpse of that, do we? What do we get a glimpse of? The best. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a form of self-exaltation? Yes, it's a form of building ourselves up in order for us to get more likes, shares, comments, loves, hearts, all these things. And here's the deal. It's not inherently bad to put photos on Facebook. That's not what I'm saying. But if you know that you are putting things out there for others to see, to exalt yourself, or to help them see the best of who you are and not the worst of who you are, then the challenge is, is that something else may be ruling your heart. And you just have to be careful about that. I love the fact that people bring me along on the journey with their families. I love to see pictures. I I love to see stories. I love to see that. But where we have to be careful is not exalting ourselves above others. Because when we exalt ourselves from others, guess what? It's easy also for us to suppress others. And you oftentimes see that in the means of a Facebook conversation. Have y'all ever been in the popcorn chair uh, popcorn chair means that you're watching, you're, you're eating popcorn while you see a conversation go bad on Facebook. Y'all ever been there? Yes, okay. Now, here's the deal. In one way, it's kind of funny because I've been in that chair and I'm like, oh, this is not gonna go well, right? Like it's not, it's gonna be bad. Now, there's some of you in here like, that was me. I, that was one of the guys that posted that, right? But here's what I would want you to say is if you remember the words of Paul, When he says, you're going to see people who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, they're going to be slanderous, treacherous, all these things. Do you remember the very last phrase? He said, avoid what? Now, what does that mean? It means don't get caught in the snare or the trap of self-exaltation, the exalting of you, and the tearing down of others. Don't get caught in the trap of being a lover of yourself rather than a lover of God. And he says, and when you see it, resist the urge to pull up a chair and watch. Resist the urge to join in. And you're like, well, I'm not joining in because I wouldn't dare type. But friends, if you're not stopping it, then you are in some ways celebrating it. And I would just say, friends, you have to be careful. And we live in a day and age, and we live in communities where people are constantly typing things that they wouldn't say to someone's face. And we have to be careful. And I'll tell you, we'll run down a variety of things. In the course of the last couple of years, I could count no less than 30 posts that run down school districts, that run down teachers and educators, that run down pastors and churches, that run restaurants down in town. I had a terrible experience at a restaurant this week. Perhaps the the worst experience in our town that I've had in the last 12 years. Horrible experience in which I spoke to the manager about. But I don't believe that's Facebook's problem. And I have to be careful. Why? Because what am I desiring to do? Do I want more people to jump on the bandwagon with me? For what? Self-exaltation? Pride? Someone else who agree with me? Just be careful. If Paul says in his days, avoid such people, I think it still means today, avoid such people. 
Now, listen, I think our role in that, to avoid such people, doesn't necessarily mean that you write someone off. I think it could be a warning. And so over the years, there have been times where I would text a friend and say, hey man, like you, you might wanna remove that. That's not helpful. And why would I ask that? Simply because, hey, like I believe that there's a lot of us in this room who we, we genuinely do love God and we wanna love God more, right? And I don't know about you, but in my love for God, I also can be foolish. So can I just tell you that I've said and I've typed and I've shared things that I regret? And so if you've done that too, listen, you are in good company. But what I would say is we have to resist the urge to do that. Just as Jesus said, no, for it is written, hey, we have to also believe those things. So maintain self-control, master your tongue or your keyboard, master your text message. Be careful of who you involve in a part of a problem. Be careful to not let pride and self-ambition and vain conceit rule your hearts, right? And then we continue on in that Matthew chapter four, verse eight, the third temptation. Again, the devil takes Jesus to a high, a very high mountain. So the second was a temple, now a very high mountain. He shows him all the kings of the earth, of the world and their glory. And he said to him, hey, all these things I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and and only shall you serve him. And then the devil left and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. But here, what you see is that he now appeals to the eyes of Jesus. He goes, Jesus, if you can see it, it could be yours. All you gotta do is bow down to me. Now, what's interesting is, is that Satan is appealing to the one who already is the master of the universe. He's the creator of all of it. But let me ask you a question. Can can God, or can God, um, desire for us to love him in ways um, that we don't and we allow this temptation of the lust of our eyes to rule our hearts? And I would say, yes, absolutely. So my third warning would simply be, hey, flee from the idea of pride and power because that's really what he was trying to tempt Jesus in. Hey, if you could see it, it could be yours. You wanna be a king? I'll give you all the kingdoms. And if not careful, Facebook starts out in a fairly innocent way, right? We're just connecting with old friends, we're just checking out a few recipes. And before too long, we get sucked in. And when we get sucked in, whether it be social media or our family or our, or our phones, whatever it is, if not careful, the longer that we get sucked in, the more that things rule our hearts. And I think James, the brother of Jesus, had a great recommendation for us in James chapter four around this topic. Look what James 4, verses 6 through 10 says, and we'll close with this. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who does he give grace to? The humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? Exalt you. So the whole point of this is simply this. In all of this, what is the key? The key is is to draw near to God. Instead of exuding self-exaltation, exude humility. 
instead of our flesh drawing us away from God, hey, we should live in the spirit. Paul talks a whole lot about that in Galatians chapter five. Instead of boasting our chest and arrogance, say, hey, let us make a name for ourselves. The key is, is to use our social media to make a name for who? God and his glory. And if you're wondering, well, am I doing a very good job in these areas? Then here's what I would say. Go look over the last 40 Facebook posts you've made and ask the question, what rules your heart? Now, look, here's the deal. With that, except here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Think about this. Even as you think about that, what you posted may not be inherently evil at all, but it may reflect the thing you care about most. Let me say it one more time. It may not be a bad thing, but it may reveal what you care about most. And so you just got to ask yourself the question, what I'm promoting, what I'm sharing, is it making a name for myself? Is it making a name for someone else? Is it making a name for something else? And the question that you got to ask yourself is, who is getting any of the glory? When's the last time that you made a post that just exalts God's glory? When's the last time that you brought people's focus back to your page, not around a recipe, but about the creator of all things? When's the last time that instead of promoting something around our school, which you should, I, I don't, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but is there, is there some distribution? Is there some equality there? Is God getting some of it as well? He should. Does it make sense? And so just think about that. Lord, how how am I involving you? And how am I making your glory known throughout the world? Because this can be a fantastic tool to bring neighbors and friends and coworkers and people all across the, the globe to, to the Lord. Or it could be self-centered, egotistical, prideful, and as a means to make your purposes, your name, your plans, and your provisions known. And the question is, is, which one is it? Which one rules your heart? And ask the Lord to help you. Because at the end of the day, I think most of us in here would say, Lord, I do have a business and my business does get some traction on social media and my business is there and it should honor God. And I say, by all means, it should. But at the same time, the only people, the only things people should hear from you is not around your business. But a while about the ways that God is making himself known in other areas of your life. And I think it's also helpful at times, even share, if we're gonna share all the good things to every now and then bring a dose of reality and say, hey, let me show you where I stumbled and how God was sufficient in his grace. And I pray that every message I teach, that you would, you would hear both from me. The exaltation of God's glory, the humility of a man who's missed it and who simply wants you to grow in the same ways I need to grow. Because friends, I need the Lord's help. And that's why we've done a series called God in Everyday Life. Because there's a lot of areas in my everyday life that need help. I'll close with this story. My arch nemesis in my life lately has been a pipe fence that I've been working on. It's a, a pipe fence that we inherited on the place we bought. It's five rails, hasn't been touched in decades. It's rusted out. It's disgusting and I decided a couple months ago that, hey, you know what, I'm gonna paint it. But in order to paint it, I had to prepare it. And right now I'm able to go about eight foot every 40 minutes. 
and I'm about 250 foot in to about 7,000 feet. And I'm already like, oh, this is for the birds. I'm like, I'm already thinking, okay, who can I hire? Like, there's teenagers that need some work. I mean, something, right? And uh, it's my arch nemesis because I don't really want to go out and do it. But if you know me, I, I cannot stand to look at something that doesn't look excellent. And not only does it not look excellent, but I know I started a project that looked bad. And now that part of it started and the rest of it looks terrible, like you don't just stop now in the middle, Right. And friends, let's just be honest, I'm not even in the middle. I'm not even a tenth of the way done, okay? Uh, so I've got a couple hundred feet that are prepped and painted and all that. And yesterday, I'm like, okay, i got to put a second coat on it. And I'm already like, I'm grumbling and complaining before I open the can, the, the pan of, ca- the, the, whatever that is, can of paint. <clears throat> and, and then I'm like, Lord, what can I do in this time besides the mundane work of painting, which I hate? And it's like, pray, seek me. And yesterday was just a couple of hours of positioning my heart and drawing near to God, praying for you, praying for our message this morning, praying for our worship, praying for the response to God's word. But then also just to be honest, just praying for me, ways that I grow stale and stagnant, where my love for Jesus seems to wane and it's ups and downs, it's highs and lows. Like sometimes I feel like sweet fellowship and then I feel sometimes like God's distant. And just pray and just say, Lord, I want more of you. I, I know that you desire more of me and, and I can grow more in my affections for the Lord. Lord, what stands in my way? And I can just tell you, there's a lot of things that stand in my way, but I want to know and love God more. And I want you to as well. And I pray that media, and entertainment, and our phones, and the desire just to quench our boredom doesn't stand in the way of our affections and our love for our Savior. So may the Lord help us. And what a sweet time of the year to draw near to our Savior, the one who came to life from the dead so that we don't have to be dead. And so may the Lord teach us to walk in his ways, to live humbly, to enjoy his grace, and to prioritize him in whatever we do, whether in word or deed. May it all be for the glory of God, including media, me, and my walk with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that in this rather lengthy time together that you could use your word to just move our hearts towards you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do just that. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Jesus and the way that he continually responded, though tempted of 40 days of of a fleshly desire and need of food, he resisted, not only because he was your son, but Lord, because he knew what it was like and needed to endure the temptation for his sacrifice to matter. And we thank you, Lord, that he was the perfect example of what it looked like to be tempted, but to stand the test. And Lord, we know that just as he was tempted in every way, Lord, he was, he was perfect. And because of that, we not only have a savior, but we have a means to your grace. And we have been reconciled through his blood, through his sacrifice to sing to you, to celebrate you, and to make much of you even as we post things this afternoon. And so Lord, may your glory shine forth in our lives and on our media accounts. 
on our phone, in our text messages. May we make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.